thing even on. So this is my seventh episode of Stuff You're Too Busy to Read. If you have listened to the other six, you might realize that I'm a bit eclectic in my thought process and reading patterns. There is definitely a political tie to probably everything I do because this is one of my key interests and fascinations. Hopefully though, these episodes achieve its goal, which is to give you access to other pieces of literature out there that you wish you had time to read and might think about reading when your life slows down. Like mine has really slowed down in some respects because uh, my youngest child went to kindergarten. So that has helped free up my mind in different ways. This episode's topic is inspired by current events like most of my episodes, but lately we have seen a surge in one part of the country to get rid of statues that are now seen as offensive, which are primarily, as of right now, Civil War statutes, although they've kind of gone on to others as well. And these Civil War statutes depict Southern general or war heroes. I believe the casual observer of news and even the ardent watcher of news both were caught off guard by this sudden rage. Like, where did it come from? Why did it start now? I really do not try to attempt to answer those questions because I believe it is unknowable to a certain degree. You know, if I'm being cynical, I would say that this is a fundraising campaign effort. Just in July, if we look at over the summer, it was reported that the DNC was in debt with only 7.5 million on hand, while the RNC is debt-free and has 44.7 million on hand. You have to remember that It is these Democratic town councils on the East that are raising these issues or bringing down these statutes and not necessarily the people in their districts. The genesis of these ideas, I do think, are important and relevant to trying to figure out how they're starting all of a sudden. However, I will refrain from being too cynical about this issue because I do believe that there are protesters who are very sincere in their feelings about believing these symbols are harmful to progress. So really my approach is just to talk about one variable of these uh, quote unquote uprisings. I do not believe that there's just one reason to a problem. If there was one reason, then there would be one solution. I do not believe that there is one solution but a solution can still help to make this a more civil and peaceful society. So as I watched the unrest about Civil War statues, my mind immediately thought of a man named Mohammed Bouazizi of Tunisia, who set himself on fire in January of 2011. He later died of his burns and was credited for kickstarting what was later called the Arab Spring. So if you look up Arab Spring in like Wikipedia, it explains it as the following. The Arab Spring, also referred to as Arab Revolutions, was a revolutionary wave of both violent and nonviolent demonstrations, protests, riots, coups, 
and civil wars in North Africa and the Middle East that began on the 17th of December, 2010 in Tunisia with the Tunisian revolution. So in the United States, it was portrayed as a revolution for human freedoms or civil liberties with a religious undertone. However, Hernando de Soto, who is a Peruvian economist, has a different perspective on the Arab Spring. He went to investigate Mohammed Bouazizi to find out why he did what he did. He made a fascinating documentary on it that can be found on YouTube called Unlikely Heroes of the Arab Spring. Instead of Mohammed Bouazizi being inspired by religion, he was actually desperate from government action against his livelihood. It was not political, but economical. Hernando de Soto found a culture in Arab world of high youth and young adult unemployment of about 25% that was coupled with huge responsibilities on these young men to take care of their families. So what do you think people will do for money to provide for their families? Anyone, obviously I'm going to diverge a little bit, anyone who loves the musical Les Mis would remember the gut-wrenching song by Fontaine, which is I Dreamed a Dream, which really summarizes the fact that her life did not turn out how she had planned or hoped. As she sells her body for money to try and support her beloved Cosette, she sings in this certain part of the song, I had a dream my life would be so different from this hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream I dreamed. When people feel shut out of the marketplace, like even really Fontaine, when she had lost her job and couldn't get work, and like Mohammed Bouazizi, they will do desperate things, especially in moments of weakness. Hernando de Soto explained what economic life was like in Tunisia and the Arab world. It is full of corruption. It matters more who you know in the local governments than what you know. Bouazizi had no connections in the local government, so he could not pay off officials to allow him to run his fruit stand in the streets. If he went through the normal methods of obtaining a license to sell his fruit, the amount of regulations were costly and time-consuming. So just to give you an idea, to obtain legal license in Tunisia, one has to, number one, wait 189 days when they start the process. Number two, pay $1,212, which again, remember, these people make about $5 a day. Number three, they would have to deal with 29 government agencies. Here I thought, the U.S. was bad, which we are growing in government agencies. But my word, that is unbelievable. And number four, they would have to deal with 215 different laws, hence why people try to bribe their local government officials. This is all, all of these like hoops to jump through really is to prove potential to the corrupt government. So there's no way the little guy can actually operate a small business in the Arab world. Therefore, they have to work outside the legal system. So on January 4th, 2011, the Tunisian police took the fruit weights of Bouazizi's cart and broke them, as well as his fruit cart, which was his whole business. 
So after he went to the local government to try to get it back, because actually this wasn't the first time it happened, but he went there to try to get it back. He found out that he would not be able to get it back. So, so fed up and desperate as the sole provider of his family, he set himself on fire. This action seen around the world kickstarted similar actions in other parts of the Arab world that was already beginning to boil. What country can you think of that has a civil and peaceful society when 25% of the youth and young adult men are out of work and poor? I'm sure you could probably see a little bit how this relates to civil statutes, or maybe not. But this again brings in a book by uh, an economist named Nicholas Eberstadt, and he wrote a book called Men Without Work. It is about an invisible crisis happening to men, in particular, who have been leaving the workforce in droves for decades now. So let me give you some context on this. The unemployment rate is calculated by taking all the people working and contrasting that with all the people who want to work and can't find a job or who are looking. So therefore, this unemployment rate does not account for people who can work and don't. And it is also even questionable of uh, the ever-expanding definition of disability of those who now claim disability as well. It's not necessarily what it used to be a decade ago. So that too doesn't even factor in, you know, necessarily people who are on disability. And again, the definition is ever expanding of what that really means. So if you are not looking for a job, you are considered not unemployed according to the Federal Labor Bureau. Hence why the unemployment rate looks so great right now at 4.4% as of Monday, September 25th, 2017. However, this book analyzes the labor participation rate, which looks at men and women who are a certain age, 25 to 65, you know, the social security cutoff, and looks at how many people are participating. So for example, in 1948, the labor participation rate for men was 86%. And it has been steadily declining ever since to where it is today at 68%. So to put these numbers in terms of jobs, Eberstadt quotes, if our nation's work rate today were back to its start of the century highs, approximately 10 million more Americans would currently have paying jobs. What makes this statistic even more sobering is the fact that the start of the century in this quote is really talking about 2000, and that was 74% participation rate. So remember, in 1948, post-World War II, it was 86%. So you can imagine another 10 million added onto that. So you might be thinking, why is our economy not hurting more if you know, the men are not working. A lot of these men are not working. Well, there are actually a couple of reasons for this, going back to the original idea that there's never just one. But one of those reasons is a clever term dubbed by the Fed called quantitative easing, or it's also known as printing money, and zero interest rates. That has actually inflated the U.S. asset values. And that will have to be reconciled, you know, if we ever want to live in the real world again. But really, the other main reason 
is women who have entered the workforce. Eberstadt explains the tremendous expansion of economic opportunities for U.S. women created a massive new supply of workers in the post-war economy. The share of women with paid work skyrocketed in every age group and doubled for women between 25 and 64. This enormous influx of new workers completely offset the decline in work rates for prime age men. However, around the late 1990s, the escalation of work rates of U.S. women stalled and over the past decade and a half fell from their all-time highs. Only then did the overall work rate for U.S. adults begin to register a decline. So part of the equation of GDP, or the gross domestic product, takes into calculation not just what is being produced, like how much is being produced, but how many people are producing it. So because we've been having this such a low labor participation rate for the past you know, last decade of 68%. That is another reason why many economists actually do not believe a 3% GDP is possible. And that's also why the talk of robots is almost a daily conversation. If we do not have some technological innovation, because of this poor labor participation rate, our standard of living will decrease because there are less people you know, around to kind of keep things running. So to kind of, you know, give you an analogy here, similar to like a factory that makes cars. If that car factory uses an assembly line that requires people to put the cars together, then that factory needs to have a certain amount of workers at all times in order to continue to producing cars, unless they innovate and are able to have machines do some of the work. So really the point being is that machines are not putting people out of work, but people are in need of machines to maintain their lifestyle. That is actually the premise of another book called Paper, <laughs> Paging Through History by Mark Kurlansky, which is you know another topic for another time. Now don't get me wrong, of course people go out of, uh, you lose their jobs because of technology. But it's not because, um, you know, uh, business owners are trying to find a way to get rid of workers. It's, in essence, uh, a way of being able to maintain and keep up with people's demands that really dictate uh, some of uh, this technology as well. So kind of now going back to the Arab Spring and the connection to men without work, one study in particular caught my eye. And it is the American Time Use Survey that was done by the U.S. Department of Labor. So in 2004, they asked people how they use their time. And Eberstadt broke it up into four groups. One, men not in the labor force, which remember, these are men that are not even calculated into the unemployment rate. So men not looking, don't care, not in the labor force. Number two, employed men. Number three, unemployed men. So these are technically people who are looking for jobs and to be classified that way. I know it's very confusing terminology. And number four, employed women. So one point in particular that I would like to cite, um, and here's what Eberstadt has to say. The greatest difference in the daily routine 
of unworking men compared to the other three groups was, of course, the time spent on socializing, relaxing, and leisure. Unworking men reportedly devoted nearly eight hours a day to these activities. Compared to other demographic groups, the unworking men expended over 700 hours each year more than unemployed men. So obviously the men who are out of work, but still wanting to work. 1,500 more hours than men with jobs and a staggering 1,700 more hours than working women in this category of socializing, relaxing, and leisure. In effect, this was akin to a full-time job for the average unworking prime age man. So what are the demographics of these unworking men? And this is kind of like the last thing I want to really point out because I think this is relevant. Eberstadt explains that an American man ages 25 to 54 was more likely to be an unworker in 2015 if he, number one, had no more than a high school diploma or two, was not married and had no children or children who lived elsewhere, or three, was not an immigrant. That caught my eye. That made me very interested to read even more about that. And that could be a, a different podcast in itself as that helped change shape my opinion of even how I feel about immigration. So anyways, that's a different matter for a different time. Or number four was African-American. So his short book goes on to examine each of those factors. And I'm, you know, sure, hopefully that that might give you enough uh, curiosity to want to at least read uh, more on why of those four different factors. So really, you tell me, what does a very rich society with a high standard of living, the highest in the world, and millions of prime age men not working but spending eight hours a day socializing, relaxing, and leisure look like after a decade of doing this. It is my opinion, it is my opinion, if we do not figure out how to raise our labor participation rate, we will continue to see protests of some sort for a variety of reasons as people try to give themselves a purpose in life. We are a first world country in search of problems instead of a first world country trying to solve problems. I know we can do better. Again, I want to reiterate, there are sincere people who have real feelings about this. But we also, when looking at the numbers, it becomes real clear that there's more to it than just that. Okay, so I really feel like I threw a bunch of garbage um, out there, but it is always my hope that people can at least look at these topics with a different perspective, knowing um, certain information. That might not change anybody's mind, but the point isn't to change minds. The point is to get people thinking to want to look at it deeper or look at it differently or read different things that... Um, involve those topics. So I look forward to another book and another topic.